Here we are at Canto 21 of Dante's Purgatorio, another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson. This is an odd canto, entirely taken up with the encounter of Dante and Virgil with a new person who suddenly appears on this terrace of avarice, the Roman poet Statius. And part of this conversation answers Dante's urgent desire to know what that earthquake from the last canto was all about. Yes, when we first see Dante at the start of the canto, he is tormented by these questions about that earthquake, so frightening, so unexpected, so so mysterious. But as we saw at the end of the last canto, he, he may be tormented with questions, but he nevertheless diligently follows after Virgil, as they both pick their way among the overcrowded terrace strewn with these penitent souls. But behold, just as the resurrected Jesus suddenly appeared to the two travellers heading towards Emmaus, so now a new person suddenly appears from behind. They become aware of him only when he greets them. O brothers, the peace of God be with you. And as you can imagine, Dante and Virgil immediately turn around to see who's speaking to them. Virgil makes the appropriate gesture, perhaps a respectful bow, or maybe a movement of his hands, to indicate that he extends that wish back to the person. We might expect we might expect Virgil to ask, as he's been concerned to do most of the time here, to ask directions, but that's not what he does. He, he just gives his good wishes in return. May the divine justice bring you in peace to the heavenly community, but with a little twist, adding that this divine justice has relegated him to eternal exile from that community. What, says the newcomer, if you two are not headed for heaven, then, then what are you doing here? Who's been leading you up along the mountain here? And Virgil explains that if he will only look on Dante's forehead, he'll see the remaining marks of the pea, signs that he is destined to pass on through purgatory up to heaven. And because Dante is still alive, Virgil adds, his soul, which is your sister and mine, cannot make this journey unaided. He, he needs someone like you or me who can understand more than he can. And that's why I was called out from the wide mouth of hell to lead him up here. And I'll go with him as far as I'm able to be of service. Virgil has explained what their position is, but now he turns to the question he knows has been bothering Dante. Can you explain what that earthquake was all about and, and why all that noise? Dante adds that this question is exactly what he wants to know, and the expectation of an answer has calmed all of his anxiety. And here's the response, which goes the long way around answering, as so many of the answers do on this journey. Nothing ever changes here in purgatory, the soul says. Only direct influences from heaven change things. Otherwise, there's no rain or hail or snow or dew or frost or, or rainbows even. None of these things once you get up from anti-purgatory into purgatory proper. Below those three steps leading to the gate of purgatory, there may be movements in the earth, with some trembling now and then, but we get no natural trembles this high up. We do, however, get those quakes like the one you've just experienced, but they don't come from natural causes. They occur when a soul here realizes it has been finally cleansed of the stains of sin, when there is no trace of a desire in that direction at all. This person, then, is free from the need to suffer, 
and is heading up to heaven, while everyone on the mountain, and the mountain itself, it seems, shouts with joy. After this explanation, we get a little autobiographical information. This soul, he's the great Roman poet Statius, but we won't learn that for several more lines, Statius says he'd been suffering on this terrace for over 500 years, and it was his liberation from his suffering that caused the shaking and shouting. So Dante and Virgil have come into contact with someone who has just finished his time on purgatory. Virgil now asks him who he was on earth. Notice both Virgil and Dante have learned not to say who are you, but who were you. On earth they had adopted certain personae during their life. Now it's just the soul, not the roles they played, that appears. And he would like to know, who, who wouldn't, why he had to spend so much time on this terrace. And another roundabout answer. In the time of the Emperor Titus, he explains, he achieved great fame for his poetic abilities, but he'd not yet found faith. They called me Statius, he declares, and he mentions his epic poems about Thebes and about Achilles, though he never got to finish the Achilles epic. The Divine Comedy has been full of details taken from Statius to epics. What sparked him to write so well was, he says, the divine flame of, of that great poem, the Aeneid. I couldn't have done any of my work without the inspiration from that. My greatest wish, he says, was to have lived when Virgil lived. Statius lived one or two of generations after Virgil. I would have given one more year here in Purgatory to have been able to see him. We now have an interesting situation. It's what we call dramatic irony, where other people know more than one of the people in the story knows. We smile to realize that Statius, in this great moment of his liberation, is, after all, coming face to face with Virgil. And Dante and Virgil know it too, but he doesn't. So, so how will this develop? Virgil looks at Dante with an expression that says, don't say anything. But Dante's feelings are so close to the surface that he can't help giving a little smile. Statius is suspicious, or puzzled, or something, and looks intently into Dante's eyes to see what that smile might have meant. Look, he says to Dante, for the sake of your blessed journey, explain to me why you just had that quick smile on your face. Now, what does Dante do? Virgil tells him to be quiet. Statius asks him to explain what's going on. Dante gives a sigh of bafflement, and Virgil, understanding, gives Dante permission to speak. You may wonder why I smiled, Dante says to Statius, but I'm about to give you a much greater wonder. My guide here is none other than Virgil himself, who gave you such inspiration. That's the only reason I was smiling, no other reason. Be before Dante has finished speaking, Statius is bending over to embrace Virgil's feet, but Virgil won't have it. No, brother, he says, don't do this. We are both shades. Oh yes, says Statius. You see how much I love you that I forgot our present situation and thought we were still on earth. That's a happy ending to the canto now, isn't it? This canto has just one incident, the encounter with Statius, who will be with them for several more cantos. There are three parts to the encounter here. First, the meeting and initial explanations then Statius' explanation of what that earthquake signified, resolving Dante's great desire to know, 
And finally, Statius identifying himself, confessing his great love for Virgil, and that final revelation that this is Virgil himself right in front of him. The opening of this canto brings in references to two incidents from Jesus' life. First, there is Dante's comparison of his great desire to learn more about that earthquake with the woman of Samaria's desire to be given the living water Jesus offered. Dante is aware that the answer to the earthquake must involve something beyond merely human or merely natural explanation. And this is what he finds when Statius carefully explains that there are no natural earthquakes this high up on the mountain, and the shaking and the noise come from the divine action of releasing a soul from purgatory. The second comparison brings together the appearance of Statius and the appearance of Jesus on the Emmaus Road, the story in which two travellers meet a third traveller who converses with them and explains what was going on in Jerusalem the past few days, that is, the crucifixion and the resurrection, and only later reveals his identity as Jesus. In the same way, Statius just suddenly appears as they are walking along, and then only after he explains about the earthquake and the system of release from suffering, only then does he identify himself, or rather the self he had adopted when alive. He doesn't say, I am Statius, or I was Statius. He says, in Robin Kirkpatrick's translation, my name was Statius to the people there, that is, to the people back on earth. The name Statius does not identify his true self, it's only a convenient label. When Virgil indicates that Dante is still alive, he gives the roundabout explanation that the fates, who spin out the thread of each person's life, had not used up all the thread allotted to Dante. That means he's got more life to live. But why does Virgil put it this way? Has he perhaps recognized that he's speaking to a fellow ancient Roman and thus uses the ancient way of speaking of a lifespan? Or, or perhaps, perhaps there is a contrast between Dante's fated or allotted lifespan on earth and the spiritual lifespan here on purgatory, which is determined not by any act of fate, but by the progress of the healing these souls are undergoing. Our spiritual or moral life is not determined by external forces, but by our free work within ourselves. I think this point is backed up by Statius' explanation of the weather, or rather the non-weather, up here in Purgatory. The life on earth is determined by cause and effect fate. On Purgatory it is shaped by our inner work. Similarly, in the living world, the weather is caused by a succession of natural processes, but on Purgatory there is no natural weather. That earthquake was not produced by natural causes, not fated by cause and effect movements of the earth. It was caused by the completed inner work of individual souls. Our cleansing, it is emphasized, is not influenced by outward causes. I suppose in modern terms that might, that might suggest that no matter how much we get healing massages or wear healing stones, or how often we perform the outward rituals of religion, our real healing takes place independent of this. The massages, stones, rituals can help set us up, but they don't magically do the work for us.
In the same way, there is no outward rule about healing. There is no one standing there with a stopwatch, timing how long we will have to stay suffering in any given place. No, Statius explains, we know from the inside when it's time to release ourselves from each terrace, and in the end, when to release ourselves from purgatory and ascend to heaven. He explains this in more technical terms than we might like, setting up two kinds of will or desire in us, absolute and conditional. Our absolute will desires to come to the state of blessedness, that is, the state of health when we can enjoy fully the life of community with others and with the divine source. All of us want this. It's, it's the ultimate bliss. But our other will, the conditional will, is the wayward one, and can be diverted to other desires, that is, all those wrongful desires Virgil had been explaining just before, love of the wrong things, not enough love, too much love for other things. When our intellect alerts us that our conditional will has led us in the wrong direction, we can then adjust our will and, and choose not to go in this direction. And that's called repentance. But the will is still wayward and still has urges in those old directions. So these urges have to be washed away, and that is done through the specific suffering we are observing on these levels, suffering appropriate to each kind of deviation. After a certain amount of suffering, these urges disappear, and our conditional will is now in sync with our absolute will. This means we're free from the stain of that sin, and when all of our urges are thus cleansed, we have done our work in purgatory and are now ready to join the dance in heaven. And this, we learn, is Statius' position. But look, as you know, we can't really take all this in until we have a vivid example to connect it to the real life we all know. And since we're here on the terrace of avarice, let's take an avaricious example. Suppose you realize how greedy you are for power, as manifested, let's say, in your trying to control all the different committees you've joined and to dominate all conversations. Maybe someone said something, either cruelly or in kindness, drawing you aside one day, and let you know how much everybody resented your behavior. Whatever gave you this moment of clarity led to your eyes being open, and now you can see clearly that the object of your desire, that power in a group, is not the highest good. It does not work for the good of the community, no matter how efficient you may happen to be. You stir up resentment and division within the group. Okay, you now see this about yourself, and your will makes the decision to stop doing it. There's the repentance. And that's good. It's your passport, in fact, to salvation. It's what salvation means. You no longer consent to this harmful behavior. And that's enough to save you, to keep you out of the hell of confinement in your self-centered world. But you're not finished. You're not ready to get to heaven. You're not ready to be a full member of the community. You need to cleanse yourself of this urge, or maybe habit, of dominating the groups. 
You, you will have promised yourself that at the next meeting, you definitely will not call out and interrupt others when they're speaking, and you'll not put forth your ideas as though they're the best and only ideas possible. But at the next meeting, you suddenly, I couldn't help myself, you suddenly start calling out, trying to take over the meeting, all those old habits you have repudiated. Somehow, if you're really going to be healed, you have to take the further step of breaking the habit, that urge to dominate. The suffering on this terrace of avarice provides us with an image of the psychological sufferings you have to undergo in order to break the habit. You have to lie there, face in the dust, thinking of those examples of letting go, and pondering those other examples of people whose refusal to let go led to their destruction. Uh, and, and what does this mean you have to do? Well, let's ask, how do you do your committee work as though you were face down on the earth? That is to say, how do you keep yourself grounded? You've been abstracted, desiring power. Everything you've done in the committee has not been done for the sake of the work of the committee, but in order to keep yourself in control. What you want to do, then, is to ground yourself in the actual work of the committee. You want to throw yourself into this work, all the files and reports, and maybe spend time pitching in with the boring, routine, necessary phone calls, or go out to the people the committee serves and see what they need and what you can do for them. You take yourself out of the power position and get involved in the nitty-gritty... <laughs> what an odd word. The nitty-gritty, the grit of the organization. You can imagine the way this might feel like real suffering as your ego takes a beating. You're not a big shot, and it's humiliating. <laughs> but then humiliate comes from the Latin word for the dirt on the ground, and so it's fitting. You keep working at these earthy tasks, suffering the humiliation, but gradually finding it less and less painful. You come to see the pleasures in actually serving other people and carrying out the real work of the committee. And one day, there happens to be an opening on the executive committee, just the kind of thing you used to grab as quickly as you could. But now you notice that you're not moved to do that at all. You can let go of that job opening. Someone else can fill it. In fact, you surprise yourself by realizing that you'd, you'd rather be doing this humble grounding work for the committee any day, rather than sitting in those competitive, aggressive meetings. This is the moment Statius is talking about, when your lower will to sin has suddenly been transformed in accordance with your higher will to live in blessedness. It's as though the earth quakes below you, and the whole community rejoices to see you choose to remain in your useful position rather than lose you to the power grab. I think this helps to bring Statius' abstract explanation to life for us. By the way, notice how long Statius spent on purgatory. He died about the year 96, and the poem is set in the year 1300. That means he spent over 1,200 years in purgatory, many of them actually in anti-purgatory, as might become clear in the next canto. And of these years, 500 were spent here at Avarice. We can take these calculations further, but, but what's the point? Our calculations of the length of time, as we've been told before, do not matter here on purgatory. 
Time here is told by inner work, not by objective enumerations of hours, days, months, which are the rags of time, as John Donne said. And finally, that great scene of dramatic irony, of suspense, when Statius expresses his deepest desire to see Virgil, or, or rather, it used to be his desire. He's, he's now freed from such earthly desires. But why doesn't Virgil want to reveal who he is? Does she feel some shame that he, this man's great hero, is stuck in limbo forever? Or is he humble, not wanting all the praise? On this terrace of avaricious grabbing for prestige, is Virgil showing that he's as free from this sin as anyone else around? Or maybe he just knows his place. This journey is not about him. It's Dante's journey, not his. When his identity is revealed and Statius wants to embrace his feet in humble respect, Virgil forbids this. Brother, we are both shades, he says. That is, we are just souls now, not the roles we played on earth. Statius has no more cause to bow to Virgil as a great poet than Dante had to kneel beside Adrian, the former pope. Besides, let's admit, it's a little embarrassing to be embraced by a saved soul when you can't be saved yourself. It just brings out the poignancy. And this scene, let's not forget, for all its joyful fellowship, is tinged throughout with the poignant reminder that Virgil is soon going back to limbo in hell, where there is no pain, but also, because they could not imagine it while alive, there's no heavenly joy. But wait, how did Statius, a pagan Roman like Virgil, come to arrive here in the land of the saved souls? Why is he not in limbo like the other classical poets? The explanation will come in the next canto, so we'd better meet up again there.